quite a break from the Gospel of Mark, and we return to Mark today. We are journeying with Jesus through Mark, and today we are in Mark chapter 7, if you will turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. And we're going to read two very unusual miracle stories today. The first is with a Syrian Phoenician woman. And in this miracle, Jesus almost seems distant, aloof, even abrasive. Kind of strange. And in the second story, Jesus does some strange things as he heals a man who is deaf and nearly mute. But despite how odd some of this seems, at the end of the chapter, the people of of the Decapolis where the man was healed, they proclaim about Jesus, he has done everything well. Amen? He does all things well. And so these stories remind us that in those times where we don't quite understand what Jesus is doing or how He is working in our lives, we can remember that He does all things well. And these stories can help us understand how Jesus does all things well, whether that's receiving us as we come to Him in faith or whether that is sending us out on mission to tell others the good news of His grace. So let's look together at Mark chapter 7. We're going to read this first story. Verses 24 through 30. Jesus left that place. I remember that place is uh, probably around Capernaum. He was uh, kind of uh, having it out with some of the Pharisees and the scribes. They were, they were debating about uh, cleanliness laws. And so Jesus left that place, went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence a secret. That's a common theme we see in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is always trying to avoid the crowds, but he never can quite do it. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demons gone. Does that story make you a little uncomfortable? Do you squirm a little bit in your pew as you read what Jesus says to her? I do when I read this. And in fact, this story very recently was a source of some controversy. There was a very liberal, progressive Episcopalian priest who went on YouTube and he gave a video about how this story shows us that Jesus was a racist. And that this woman, as as an oppressed minority, was able to educate Jesus about his racism. And what we see at the end of the story is Jesus is repenting of his racism. Now, let me just say about that idea, hogwash. That's ridiculous. Jesus was not and could not be a racist because he is the sinless, perfect Son of God, the Creator of all people and all humanity made in his image. Secondly, none of us could ever educate Jesus on anything And thirdly, Jesus therefore never had any need or reason to repent of anything. So if that's not the case, if this isn't an example of Jesus being racist and and experiencing enlightenment, then what is going on in this story? Because it is a strange story. Author Kent Hughes describes it as a story of a faith that delighted Jesus. So I want us to think about that. 
In what kind of faith does Jesus delight? If He does all things well, what is He doing so well in this story about this woman? Well, first we need to remember some context. Because this was no mere encounter. This didn't happen by accident. Jesus intended to meet this woman. Even though He went and He hid in the house and He tried to avoid the crowds, I believe that He went to Tyre to meet this woman specifically. Remember, as I said earlier, Jesus there around Galilee had faced some major backlash from the Pharisees and from the religious elite, and they had gotten into this argument because Jesus' disciples were eating with unwashed hands. And so Jesus accused them of actually betraying the Word of God and elevating their man-made traditions above the Word of God. And He told them that it's not what goes into a man that makes you unclean, it's what comes from your heart. And that there's no external rituals or things you can perform to ever change your sinful, unclean heart. And so it was quite a blow-up. And if the Pharisees weren't intent on seeing Jesus eliminated before that, they were now. So Jesus leaves the jurisdiction of the Pharisees to get some rest and I think to avoid any further confrontation at the moment because Jesus has a timetable and he knows when he's supposed to be betrayed and and tried and crucified and his time had not yet come. So Jesus goes about 35 miles north. He goes deep into Gentile territory, something the Pharisees no doubt saw as scandalous because you can't go all the way up there to Tyre, there on the Mediterranean coast, and all up in that Gentile region, you can't go up there and not encounter these unclean pagan Gentiles. He's going to rub elbows with them. He's going to touch them. He's going to be in their midst. Which, of course, was the point. That's why Jesus went there. And this unclean Syrophoenician woman, she was a Greek-speaking pagan Gentile from Tyre. And that is just what Jesus was looking for. Maybe Jesus intended to contrast this so-called unclean Gentile with the hard-heartedness and the sinfulness of these religious elites that thought they had it all together. Maybe Jesus wanted to illustrate that the kind of faith He delights in is a faith that pleads. It's the first thing we see from this woman, a faith that pleads. Now, lower class Women in the Greco-Roman world, they were victimized by their culture. I mean, they, they had no rights. They couldn't own property. They had no say in their lives. Uh, men in their lives could use and abuse them, and they had little recourse. So it's quite remarkable that this woman would even approach Jesus at all. A stranger, a man, a man of authority, a man of fame. But she took a risk because her need was so great. Her daughter was afflicted with a demon that very likely wreaked havoc on her young body. The the Gospels tell us many times that demons would cause seizures and convulsions and would lead people to cut themselves or do other forms of self-harm. And that might be what was happening with her daughter. How would you feel if that was your daughter? What would you do? What lengths would you go to to help her? This mother had heard about Jesus through word of mouth. You know, the the, the news of these amazing miracles were spreading far and wide and she was desperate enough to approach this famous Jewish rabbi that had such power. She came to Jesus in faith and Jesus knew it. And Jesus marveled at this woman's humble, pleading faith. Now, there's only two times in all the Gospels that Jesus has explicitly stated to marvel at something. 
The first is when he marveled at the faith of a Roman centurion who wanted Jesus to heal his servant. Jesus marveled at his great faith. The second time is when he marveled at the lack of faith of the people of Nazareth. Now, Mark doesn't use that word marvel here. He doesn't describe uh, Jesus' response to this woman that way. But if we look at Matthew's account of this, Matthew records Jesus as saying, Woman, you have great faith. He comments on her great faith. So I think if you take that and the story of the Roman centurion, the only two places that we see Jesus marveling at someone's great faith, they're both Gentiles. They're not Jewish. They're not of the people of Israel. And everything Jesus says and does in this strange encounter is to draw out this woman's faith, to help it grow, to bring it from a faith that merely pleads to a faith that persists. I see the tense verb of the, of the word uh, begged there in the Greek means that she kept on begging. She was persistent in her begging. She didn't just ask once and stop. She didn't give up. She kept on and persisted. That's B. She persisted in her faith. She refused to be denied. And we should follow her example as we pray. And as we trust in God to work in our lives. Again, in Matthew's account, we get a little more details. You know, true to Mark, Mark is big on action and, and, and small on words. He doesn't tell us a lot about what Jesus or other people said. But Matthew tells us what she said in her persistent pleading. In Matthew 15, 22, A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Now notice this. Not only was she persistent, but Matthew says she was noisy. She was crying out. She was, she was making a scene. And Jesus' response, Jesus' response is really kind of what makes this story a little difficult. It seems jarring because we know the heart of Christ. We know the compassion He has for others. And so when we read His words to us, it seems indifferent if not hostile. When we ask the question, what would Jesus do This response isn't really the one that comes to our mind, is it? But appearances can be deceiving. Remember remember how the disciples felt like that Jesus was indifferent toward them and he didn't care when the storm was coming and they were bailing out water. And what was Jesus doing? Asleep on the back of the boat, right? And we know Jesus wasn't indifferent and we know that Jesus woke up and he calmed the storm. Jesus is no less indifferent toward this woman than he was toward his own disciples. In fact, if anyone shows an indifference here, it's the disciples. They were, they were as annoyed with her as they were with that hungry crowd of 5,000 people that were following them around. Remember, they were like, Jesus, just send them away. Get, get rid of these people. And in fact, in Matthew's account, the disciples tell Jesus, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. That it was in spite of this apparent rejection that this, little, this, this woman thought of her suffering little girl. And she remembered what she had heard about Jesus. And so she persisted. Now let's think about Jesus' response. Look back at verse 27. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, who in this little analogy are the children? Who are the children? Israel. Matthew even tells us it's the lost sheep of Israel. And so Jesus is making the point that he came for the Jews first. Now, is that true? Yes. Yes. Jesus was a Jew. 
He came in fulfillment of Jewish prophecies. He was the Jewish Messiah. And it was through the Jews, go all the way back to Abraham, God said, through you and your descendants, I will bless all the families on the earth. So Jesus' ministry had to begin first with the Jews. But what really gives people heartburn about this isn't that Jesus said that he had to come to the Jews first. It isn't that he compared the Jews to the children of God. No, it's that this woman was compared to a dog, right? And that Jesus said it's not right to take what belongs to Israel and to give it to people like you. Now, what represents the bread in this analogy? Is it, is it Jesus? Salvation? The gospel? Is it the kingdom? Is it the miracles? We don't really know. That, that, that's a little more ambiguous. Since this woman is asking for Jesus' healing power, maybe that's what he's referring to, that he's, he's got to focus on some miracles in, in Israel right now. But whatever it means, this woman understood better than we do what Jesus was actually saying. For one thing, she got to hear the tone of Jesus' voice, which we don't get as we read. But if you look at the Greek, the word that Jesus uses for dog is a tender word. It's the word kunaria. It's the Greek word for a pet. A pet dog. It's not the harsher word the Pharisees would have used about the Gentiles. When the Pharisees called them dogs, that meant a stray dog. So Jesus wasn't calling her a mangy mutt. He wasn't calling her some kind of a, a, you know, a, a, a scrappy a flea bag dog. He was referring to her as a beloved family pet. Now, my family has a pet dog, and her name is Maggie. And Maggie's not at all spoiled. No, she's not at all spoiled. Maggie is not allowed on the couch. Um, <laughs> but she gets up on the couch every evening and morning and just whenever she wants to have her belly rubbed and to have her head scratched. And, and anytime anybody ever comes over, she's convinced that they're there to see her. Which either means she's going to run up and love on them or she's going to eat them alive. One, one, of, one or the other. And, you know, and Maggie is on a very strict doggy diet, okay? She's only supposed to eat her dog food. But some people who shall not be named sometimes slip her things from the table, right? So, yeah, Maggie's not at all spoiled. She doesn't, she doesn't like to be held like a baby or anything like that, not, not at all. Well, this woman sensed what Jesus was getting at. He, she understood kind of where Jesus was going with this analogy. So she replied with great boldness. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She turned Jesus' response into her concluding argument. She said, yes, I am just a little dog, so doesn't that mean I get some of the children of Israel's crumbs? This woman knew she was a dog. She knew there was no reason for Jesus to help her. She knew that she didn't deserve his attention. She had no claim to the right of place within God's kingdom. She understand that as a Gentile, she was not a member of God's household. And in that, she's a model for us because guess what? None of us deserve a place at Jesus' table. Amen? None of us can earn that place. We're all dependent on Christ's goodness because none of us are good enough on our own. It's all about His grace toward us that we could never deserve and we could never earn. And so she persisted in her faith. And because of that, we see Jesus delights in a faith that prevails. 
It's because of this mother's persistence that her daughter was, was healed. You know, I think all too often we give up in our praying. We don't persist if the answer isn't forthcoming. Maybe you've prayed for healing in your body, for a change or an improvement in your finances. Maybe you've prayed for guidance in some life decision and the answer just hasn't come yet. Don't give up. Keep praying. Be persistent. The kingdom of heaven is for those who are willing to spend relentless energy pursuing spiritual things. Now, Jesus loved to tell parables about persistent people. Remember the story of the woman who, who kept going to the judge and pleading with him and pleading with him until he ruled on her case. And, 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 and in fact, the judge gives in commenting in Luke 18, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because the widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Jesus loved persistent faith in others, like the four friends who had the paralyzed man, and when they couldn't get through the crowd to get to Jesus, they didn't let that stop them. They climbed up on the roof, tore a hole, and lowered him down by ropes. Jesus delighted in their faith. That's the kind of faith that Jesus desires. That's the kind of faith that prevails. And that is why Jesus so uniquely drew out this woman's deep, desperate, persistent faith. He was actually giving her a chance to acknowledge her desperate need for Him, her unworthiness, as we all are unworthy, and to confess Him as Lord, which she does. In essence, she confessed, if you say I'm a little dog, so be it. I am whatever you say I am. And that must mean that I have a master who provides for me. And that master is you, Jesus. What a confession of faith. She was willing in humble faith to claim the crumbs from the kingdom table so that she became one of those many that will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, Jesus invites all of us to come to Him in humble, persistent, desperate faith. We don't have to come with a great faith. Even the faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed is enough. Jesus can take that little bit of faith and do so much with it such that we can even move mountains. When we recognize our unworthiness and His great generosity, we can cry out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And that is a prayer that God is ready to answer every day. And once we come to Jesus with that kind of faith and we become members of that household and we, we are graciously given that seat at the table, then Jesus sends us back out into the streets that we can bring others to Him. He commissions us to carry out His ministry. And it's in this next story that Jesus demonstrates for us how we can best carry out that ministry. So the first story is about how we come to Jesus in faith. The second is how we go out from Jesus to serve and to minister. So let's pick it up in verse 31. So Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, went through Sidon, down back to the Sea of Galilee, and over to the other side, the non-Jewish side, the Gentile side, to the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hands on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. 
At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. And Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. Again, Jesus often does this, and people never listen. They always go and tell. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, here we find Jesus ministering to another unique individual. This poor man couldn't even ask for Jesus' help. He couldn't even hear Jesus speak. He was likely poor, uneducated, maybe couldn't read, and therefore was ignorant of the truths of Scripture. Not to mention he was likely a Gentile since he lives in the Decapolis. He had probably faced isolation, rejection, and fear. This man felt alone. He felt hopeless and forgotten. But there's somebody who showed concern for him. Somebody who heard about Jesus. And maybe they heard about Jesus from the the demon-possessed man, the man who had the legion of demons in him. This is where he was from. This is the region Jesus told him to go back and tell the good news. Maybe that's who they heard it from. And whoever this concerned friend, family member, neighbor was, they did what they could. They brought this poor deaf-mute man to Jesus. Sometimes that's all we can do to help somebody is just bring them to Jesus. But not only was the recipient of Jesus' ministry unique, the method that Jesus used to heal this man was unique, even strange. Now, Mark doesn't usually record this level of detail, so he must want us to pay attention to this strange procedure that Jesus uses. Why did Jesus use these particular actions? Why did Mark record them for us? Well, I believe that both Jesus and Mark want us to recognize, first, that Jesus meets us where we are. He meets us where we are, just as he did with that Canaanite woman. He met her where she was, just as he does here with this man. And though his methods may seem strange, they're always done out of compassion, and they're always just the right thing for our particular needs. Think about this man's handicap. Right? Jesus puts fingers in his ears as a sort of sign language to say, I'm going to restore your hearing. When Jesus spits and then touches the man's tongue, he's saying, I'm going to put words back in your mouth. Jesus looks heavenward as a sign to this man of where this healing power is coming from. He's making sure that God the Father receives the glory. And he sighs. Even though the man can't hear it, the man can visibly see this sigh, letting this man know that he is burdened, that he is broken. He is full of compassion for this man in his condition. He wants the man to know that he cares. And imagine, the first sound, either the, maybe the first sound you've ever heard or the first sound you've heard in many, many, many years is the voice of Jesus speaking, Ephatha, be opened. That's what this man hears. Jesus personalized his method of healing to help this man understand what he was doing. And who the source of this healing power was. This wasn't magic. This wasn't a trick. This was God's divine power at work. But I think there's a specific reason why Mark communicates these details to us. He's using Jesus as an example for us so we can know how we can reach the needy around us. People living in a pagan culture who know little to nothing about God. How can we reach out to them? And the first thing we see is he showed a thoughtful respect for human dignity. Jesus didn't want to make a spectacle of this man. This man had been a spectacle long enough in his life. He'd been talked about behind his back because they couldn't hear him. He'd been ridiculed. People rejected him, probably thought that he deserved this, that he'd done something wrong, and this was some punishment from the gods. 
So Jesus treated this man as a precious creation of God. As someone made in God's image, he pulled him aside away from the crowd for a one-on-one intimate moment of transformation. And we should do the same. We should always recognize and respect the God-given dignity of those that we are ministering to and reaching out to. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter what they've believed. It doesn't matter what kind of lives they live. It doesn't matter what their politics are. None of that matters. God made them. Jesus died for them. And He has sent us to reach them. And we should do it in a way that sees them through the eyes of compassion and honors their sacred dignity and worth as people created by God. That's the first thing. Second thing we see is an upward look of prayerful dependence. I know it's so easy, and as a pastor, especially me, it's so easy to get so busy doing ministry and learning how to share our faith and, 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 and engage in these things that, that we fail to glorify God. And instead, we draw attention to ourselves. We, we do it in our own strength. In our own, we focus on our methods, our programs, and, and our own wisdom. And we don't take the time to stop and pray first. We don't bathe what we do in prayer And that means that we don't serve in ways that point to God as the hero. No, we sometimes make ourselves or the church look like the hero. But we need to serve in ways that make it clear that we are Jesus' hands and feet, that Jesus is just ministering through us. One pastor put it this way, prayerlessness is the fundamental sin of the busy Christian. Just think if we prayed more, if we relied more on God's Spirit to work through us, how much more work could we accomplish for the kingdom of God? You know? Someone else also said, if we would give sight to the blind, we must ourselves be gazing into heaven. Are we gazing into heaven? Are we prayerfully depending on God to work through us? Or are we just out there going through the motions, doing it on our own? The second thing we see is a compassionate sigh for hurting humanity. You know, Jesus is often described as being moved by compassion or deeply moved in the Spirit. Sometimes He's moved like at Lazarus' tomb to cry. Other times He's moved at the, at the sin and the hard-heartedness of others, almost, almost like He's in anger. And if we're going to minister like Jesus, we have to share His compassionate heart for the hurting. That, that deep sigh was a breath of compassion that was equally born out of God's love for this man as well as his anger at the effects of sin in this world. He was moved with compassion. Another author wrote of Jesus' compassion saying, there's no place where earth's sorrows are more felt than in heaven. That's true. It's the compassion of God that's the very reason Jesus came, that He was born that He died on the cross and rose from the grave, and that He's coming back again very soon. And there's a hurting world out there, y'all, hurting as much or more than what this man was experiencing. And we need to come to them with our own deep sire. As Jeremiah wrote, he said, If my head were a flowing spring, my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night over the slain of my dear people. When was the last time you wept day and night over the lost around you? When's the last time that you were moved with compassion and wept for those in our community? That you were angry over the the brokenness of our world, the deformity caused by sin? Do you ever watch the news and weep? Do you ever sigh over divorce and over the unborn being slain and over the, the deception that so many people live in and the bitterness and the resentment that can tear a family apart? Does it ever make you sigh? 
May God give us tender, caring hearts that are willing to bear that burden, that are willing to break over the sin and the suffering in in our world because if we take the time to look heavenward as Jesus did, God will always give us eyes of compassion through which to see the world around us. And we'll be moved. But remember, we're moved. Compassion isn't just something you feel. It's something that causes you to reach out and touch someone. And that's what the next thing, a personal touch of transformational ministry. You know, Jesus never recoiled from laying His hands on sinful humanity. He, he didn't just feel compassion. The gospel is always like He was moved with compassion. And why is that important? Why is it important for us to touch those we serve, especially those who have felt rejected and abandoned? Those who have been wounded and are distrusting of others. Why should we touch them? Because they need to know. They need to experience a touch that says, I see you. I care. I'm here. I'm with you. It's going to be okay. Listen, there's very little transformation happening in our ministry and in our evangelism if we're going to shy away from getting close and personal with those around us who are lost and in need. If we're just going to hole up in our own Christian bubble, if we're going to turn a blind eye to the needs around us, our hearts are just going to grow colder and harder. The incarnation is all about Jesus coming down. Salvation couldn't happen without Him taking on our flesh and blood and becoming one of us and living among us. He couldn't do it from a distance. But if we try to keep ourselves detached and distant, the ring of truth will be absent from our lives. People won't care what we have to say. As the old saying goes, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And that means we can't be content just to pray for others and give to missions. We should do that. But we should also be willing to go ourselves, to get our hands dirty. We can't transform people through our touch by proxy. Jesus didn't ask Peter to put his fingers in the man's ear. Jesus did it Himself. What about you? Have you been reaching out to the people around you, the people in need, the people who are lost without Christ in our community? Are you taking the time to listen to their story? To offer them a shoulder upon which they can cry? Yeah, your hands might get a little dirty. Yeah, you might just break down and cry with them. Yes, you may have to invest some time and money and stick with them through the long haul so they can experience the eternally transforming touch of Jesus Christ. But you know what? It's worth it. Amen? It's worth it. We look up in prayerful dependence. Because without God's power working in us, we can't accomplish much. Not anything that's lasting. We sigh with a deep compassion for the hurting and lost world around us, for the brokenness that we see around us, and we reach out to get our hands dirty, meeting people at their point of need, doing what God has enabled us to do. But in order to fully serve as Jesus did, to bring others into that life-changing encounter with Jesus, we must also bring the Word of God of His saving grace. The Word of God's saving grace. You know, God's Word is sufficient. Amen? God's Word is sufficient. It can accomplish anything that God sets it out to accomplish, but God has chosen to share that gospel message through us, through our prayers, through our compassionate hurting for the world, through our hands. 
This is Jesus' lesson to us if we would reach the world around us. But the keystone that holds it all together is to speak the Word of God into people's troubled, sin-stained lives. Or as Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. God's Word has power. It's not enough for us just to meet a need. It's not enough for us just to show solidarity with someone. If we don't proclaim the gospel truth, how can they be saved? It's the only way to bring true healing and peace and fulfillment and joy in someone's life is to proclaim the saving truth of God's grace to them. Because if we don't do that, everything else we do, whether it's clothing people or feeding people or caring for people and whatever need it is, buying animals for people in other parts of the world, those are great things. But if we don't accompany it with the Word of God, we're just putting band-aids on. They need the Word of God to transform their lives, to unlock that lock and set them free. But when we combine all of these aspects of ministry, when we take that view of people that we respect and honor their dignity as people made in the image of God, people for whom Jesus died, when we are in prayerful dependence, when we allow ourselves to be moved with compassion and we let people know that we care, when we're willing to touch them in in real ways, to minister to them, to meet them in their need, and we do it as we share the Word of God, that's a combination that's powerful. That's a combination that will see lives change for eternity. That's a combination that will keep the waters of this baptistry stirred and will keep the angels in heaven rejoicing. Is that the kind of ministry that we're doing? Is that how you are serving others? If we do that, the people in this community, what's it say? They'll be overwhelmed with amazement. The people in Thompson, McDuffie County, in Georgia, will say, He has done everything well. It all depends on how we serve in His name. Maybe, like this woman and this man, you find yourself today desperate for Jesus. And you don't feel like you're worthy. You don't feel like you know enough. You don't have enough faith. You think to yourself, oh, I, I, let me get my life cleaned up a bit. Let me get my ducks in a row and get some things together. Then I'll come to Jesus. Listen, nothing can be further from the truth. What the gospel tells us is just when you're most desperate. It's when you're most broken. It's when you're the least worthy. That's when you need to come to Jesus the most. And Jesus is standing ready to receive you today just the way you are. He wants you to bring your hurt, your brokenness, those feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness, bring them to Jesus. Because none of us deserve even the crumbs from His table. And yet He still offers us seats as His sons and His daughters at God's heavenly table. That's the love that Jesus has for you. That's the grace and mercy of God. That's the invitation today. And like any invitation, you have to accept You have to come. If you, like those boys and girls this week who gave their lives to Jesus, if you need to come to Jesus today, to come with your sin, to come with your unworthiness, to come with your sordid past, to come with whatever the shame, the burden, the guilt that you bear, whatever it is, come to Jesus. Lay it at His feet. He wants to take it from you and give you peace and joy 
and abundant eternal life. He wants to be your Lord. Would you come? In a moment we're going to stand and sing and I invite you, if you don't know that you know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if there's any doubt in your heart where you will spend eternity, I invite you to come today. Begin that amazing journey, that walk with Jesus that will last not only your life, but for all of eternity. For those of us that are Christians today, are we ministering the way Jesus ministered? Are we, are we ministering the way He demonstrated? Are we dependent on Him in prayer? Are we allowing ourselves to be burdened and moved with compassion for the lost and the needy around us? How often do you go before you think about or pray about a lost person? When's the last time you shared your faith with anyone? Whether that's just your story, your testimony, or gospel presentation. When's the last time you even bothered to ask somebody about where they stood with Jesus? Whether they were a member of a church? What their faith story is? And are you willing to serve, to put your hands out there, to grab a hold of a tool, to help out at VBS or Mission McDuffie, or to change a diaper in the nursery? Are you willing to get your hands dirty in service? Are you willing to share the Word of God? This altar is open. Maybe you need to come and you need to pray and say, Jesus, forgive me for, for having a hard heart. Forgive me for being so self-consumed that I, I've not even thought about these things in, in, in months or years. I, I want to minister the way you ministered. I want to give me that broken heart of compassion for others. This altar is here for you to pray. I'm standing right here. If you need to come and renew your commitment to be a disciple who makes disciples. Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for these two stories that are in Mark back to back. They tell us so much about the kind of faith that we need to have as we come to you. To have a relationship with you, a faith that's dependent upon you, a faith that's humble, a faith that's persistent, a faith that recognizes that on our own we don't deserve you. But that in your mercy and grace you bless us with abundance. Father, if there's anyone here today that needs that, they need to begin that walk with you, they need to turn their lives over to you and let you make something better with it than they've been able to make themselves, I pray they would come right now. That woman didn't let the disciples stop her. She didn't let what other people would think stop her. She came to Jesus. If there's anyone like her today that needs to come to you, I pray they would come right now. But Father, the very next story then tells us how we as followers of Jesus must go in His name, as His hands and feet, to minister the way He modeled for us. God, break and burden our hearts for the lost around us. Open our eyes to see the needs that You've enabled us, You've equipped us and blessed us to meet. God, maybe there's some new ministry that You're laying on someone's heart to begin in this community to help us make a difference in the lives of others. Lord, I pray that You would speak to our hearts, convict us, and give us a fresh burden for going and proclaiming the good news. To offer a cup of cold water to someone in your name. Lord, as your Spirit speaks to us today, I pray that we would respond in obedience. Not now, not just now, but in the days and weeks to come. It's in His name we pray. Amen.